Thomas Walker began his baseball journey on the fields of Long Beach, California, before winding through Eugene, Oregon, Huntington Beach, Riverside, and Rochester, Minnesota, before arriving at his current location in the Bay Area, where he's an assistant baseball coach at San Jose State University. We'll discuss some of the people he's met along the way and some of the stories as well on the latest edition of the podcast with Thomas Walker. So back with another episode, Thomas Walker joins me. He is an assistant coach for San Jose State Baseball, but what a story. We'll get into it, obviously, as, as we go forward in the interview. Uh, Thomas, first of all, welcome, and uh, I want to thank you. And, I, you know, I got to say, I, I miss you, man. I just I remember a couple of years ago when you were the ops assistant at UCR, we'd have our little pregame kind of – you know, I, you give me 15, 20, you, you get me an idea of, all right, this guy's do, going okay. This guy's struggling a little bit. This guy's going to do this. And more often than not, you were pretty much on top of it, which I guess translates into how you're able to navigate your way into D1, which I know is a dream of yours. No, I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I, I miss you too. And thank you for having me, G. I mean, this is great. Um, there were a lot of good times. I think I learned a lot from my, my whole experience there at UC Riverside for sure. Right. And uh, I think a lot of it is that conversation piece, right? Like uh, yeah. coach Smith, coach Smith definitely embodied that. I think, you know, that very much, right. You know, what we get out of those conversations, those relationships, coach to player. Um, and that's exactly why I think I'm, I'm in the field that I'm in now. So um, no, this is awesome, man. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the, oh, let's, uh, I was going to start at the beginning. Let's start at the end. Uh, 2020 San Jose State, um, uh, you know, third-year head coach, so you're kind of the new guy on the staff, and you guys, it was kind of up and down, with like everybody was for this year. But so your first year as a D1 assistant coach, you deal with the pandemic. Um, help, take me through that, Thomas. I mean, you're all excited. You're starting. You guys didn't get off to the greatest start. You're heading to Mountain West play, and then all of a sudden the season gets shut down. Where were you? How did you find out? Did you get the information all at once, or was it kind of a piecemeal thing? How did that work for you? Yeah, I mean, it was a real confusing week for sure. I think we were – we actually, our last game of the season was against Cal at Cal, and we were in a back-and-forth affair. We lost 9-8, to eight, and it was actually, in my eyes, on the offensive side of the ball, one of our turning point moments because we were able to put together a rally that got us back into a game. Um, and we were, you know, as a team, scratching for runs quite a bit and trying to figure out ourselves as an offense and an identity. Um, and I think, you know, that was a big game for us in that turning point. And the, the next day I had an early morning flight to SoCal for recruiting. I was going to go to two games and I landed and my boss called me and he was like, there's this thing called COVID. I don't know what it is. Like heads up. And I was like, OK. And I got on the flight and came back to San Jose, which apparently probably wasn't the greatest idea in the world. But um <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, we all met as a team that very next day and, and the season was canceled. Um, and it was very, very confusing to me, to be honest. You know, um, I think that was a Thursday. I think that Friday I might have woke up at two o'clock in the afternoon. I think I sat still till about that evening because we were supposed to play a game that day. Nothing was going on. And like I was confused. 
Um, it was just real confusing that whole weekend. I'll be honest. I, I really didn't know what to do with myself. And obviously like our whole worlds were literally changing. Um, but yeah, to tackle all that in the first year was, was different um, for sure. And it, it brought a lot more challenges as the pandemic continued, you know, with trying to communicate to our team and the recruits and recruiting as, as we now do it via social media and web streams. Um, but then, yeah, you know, in my first year, obviously there was a ton of ups and downs and I was learning a whole new area program players and um ultimately the one thing that i really really found exciting was is that we had a great group of kids you know and um ultimately that's why we do this job right um it's trying to affect the lives of the youth and the kids that were around and so that's the one thing i've, I've ultimately really really enjoyed here at san jose uh, obviously we got great weather and that old deal but i really like the guys we have and i like the kids in our program um, some really phenomenal young men who are excited to finally be on the field getting some work in. So that is uh, also really exciting to me too. But um, yeah, it was, it was challenging that first weekend. I, I can't even, it was like a fog. It was a haze even to think about um, to just go from so busy, not stress, stress, but like, yeah, we're, we're busy. We're working, right. We're coaching. That's my first year and things are, things are going quickly. And then to just be at an immediate halt was just one of the more, uh, crazier moments in my life for sure to date um i'm still kind of reeling from it now that i think about it it's probably the first time i really gave it a real thought but um definitely what was your relationship like with coach de philip as a de filippo filippo coach sam filippo sam filippo yeah um how did you come about knowing him had you known him for years or how did that relationship ultimately result in you getting the job at san jose state so me and um me, Coach Sam Filippo, um, actually met for the first time just over the phone um, the summer of 2019. Um, the job became available. I was still the manager of the Rochester Honkers, so I was in Minnesota during that summer. Um, another coach who is now the head coach at Golden West College, Andrew Ramos, actually made a phone call for me to Coach Sam Filippo. They knew each other through the recruiting world and talking and um he was interviewing a lot of different guys and I think he just kind of cold called me to see what I was all about, and, you know, who knew and kind of thing. And that turned into another call, which turned into another call. And I knew he was interviewing other candidates the whole time. Um, and then ultimately a month later, he said, you got an off day on a Tuesday. Can you come out to San Jose and, and interview? And I did. Um, and then I flew immediately back so that I could finish the remainder of my season. And, um, I thought it went well in the interview process, um, I guess. And then, um, you know, we really hit it off, I guess you would say. Me and Coach Sanfilippo really got along, and we still get along, and I'm really excited about building this with him. Um, the culture, the program, you know, we've got all kinds of things brewing, and um, we just really kind of see eye to eye on the baseball world. So prior to that very first phone call, um, we shared a baseball field twice. He was the first base coach at Cal on my recruiting trip when I was uh, taking a visit to Oregon. And they were playing Cal in 2009, and then he was coaching, I think, third base or first base when I was playing third base at Oregon against Cal. Um, so outside of those two dates, those were those were the only other opportunities I think we had to come in contact prior to that phone call. So um, it was it was pretty organic, and it, it seems to be a, a pretty good fit for me at least. You know, we because we were going to do this, we we're going to do this talk earlier, but I know your schedule changed last week. Obviously, it kind of messed messed up a little bit. So you're back on the field. You mentioned that earlier. What's it been like, not only for yourself, but reintegrating yourself with this group? You have a good amount of guys returning, if I remember correctly. Um, so how has that process been for you? I know what, you're like three or four days into that. 
Yeah, no, it's been it's been super exciting. So like, you know, there's a lot of different protocols in place. Um, we're, we're in small groups right now, extremely small groups. So it's really spread out throughout the day. Um, I think the most exciting thing is just for our guys to get a chance to, you know, our our returners have been around the city, have been back. You know, we're trying to get acclimated, trying to get, you know, into the bubble. Um, and they've done a really good job of just being excited to take ownership of their field again, right? Like they get to go be back in their cage. And um, that's kind of what I've tried to tell them, right? Like this is theirs. It is their home. And I want them to make it feel like their home. Um, and then for the new guys, it's like, hey, like come, come, come see your home. Come join. You know what I mean? And so ultimately the first few days have been a lot of that, right? Like excitement, just be on the field, enjoy it, you know, enjoy the dirt, feel, feel the sunshine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think it's been pretty therapeutic for myself, man. It's been really nice to get some sun on my face and, and see baseballs fly over fences and things of that nature. So, um, no, it's been fun. And I think the, I think the kids are really, really happy. And I mean, I couldn't imagine being in their shoes most of this time. I don't know what 20 year old Thomas would have been up to. Um, I didn't always make the best decisions. I think you heard a few of those. So, um. you know, I, re- I really didn't actually. I heard <laughs> I from the time you got to Riverside. I had heard about your just your leadership and the way you conducted yourself. And you already mentioned uh, T. Hare, but I'll, I'll talk about two other people. So I remember two things about you when I first met you. The first day I watched you in fall ball, I had not even talked. I didn't think I'd spoken to you yet. Um, Jake Valentine, who's now at Portland, he at the time was at East Riverside. He pulled me aside. He's got to tell me about the new guys. Hey, this guy's going to be a good, you know, he'll be our Sunday starter. This guy's going to be thir- a good third baseman. This guy, you know, I don't know if he can play in the field, but, you know, he's a lefty. We'll get him some at-bats. He'll do this, that, and the other. And then they point to you. It's like, hey, that's Thomas Walker. He's going to play the outfield for us. But he turns to me and he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, whether he plays an inning for us this year or not, he's going to help us because of how he carries himself and, and his leadership. You know, and I so said, that, that's the kind of thing, Thomas, when a coach tells you that, you kind of write it down and say, okay, let's see what this is. Because to me, and I cover a lot of sports, as you know, um, right. in baseball, that seems to be, you know, they talk about chemistry in all sports. To me, baseball is just one of those sports where I think the chemistry may be underrated for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. Because, well, first of all, you guys play more games than anybody. Um, you guys playing, even in college, you're playing four games a week. And just the nature of the sport, you know, college, you know, college roster is not 25, it's 35, but you're going to play 20, probably 20 to 27 guys are going to get an opportunity to play. So it's important that one to 27, that guys know their roles. Right. Correct. No, for sure. And um, I think you hit it right on the head, actually, the underrated part of the team chemistry. I mean, it even goes into the part on the field, right? Like there's a lot of failure in the game. And I think, um, the only way a good team kind of rises to the top is being able to deal with it together, you know? Um, and I learned that early in college baseball. I mean, from even my first stop through, you know, the journey, but um, especially at Riverside, you know, that team, um, this team pulled for each other. You know what I mean? I that offense really pulled for each other. I thought we were a good offense that year because like, we really believed that the next guy would really you know, do the job if you didn't, or was going to do their job so you could do yours. Um, something coach Smith was really about that year and something I've always kind of held close, but no, you, you hit it right, man. It is underrated. The team chemistry aspect in baseball for sure. How, why did you feel so comfortable coming in and being a leader on that team, Thomas? Ah, uh, you know, um, 
Because, I mean, being the new guy can be tough, and you were a JC guy to boot. And, you know, I've covered the sport for a dozen years now, and very few times the JC guy really come in. I mean, that's, you know, JC guys either are kind of one and done or they're like, like, like they were saying, they're chemistry guys. But you came in, not only did you help in terms of your leadership, but you played pretty well on the field that year. And you seem to have that, you know, that look about you from day one. You know, it's, it's funny because I, uh, I do, I, I have and always will. And I enjoy the whole leadership aspect of life and, and in many teams that I've been on, but, um, I don't think Coach Smith really gave me an option that year. Um, if I remember it correctly, we were in a first team meeting, and in typical Coach Smith fashion, he was going on a good rant um, with a lot of very choice language and colorful language. And um, I was really wide eye at the moment because I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right, like I had met with him and Coach LeBlanc, Coach Applegate at the time, and um, he was having a great first team meeting. Man, he was fired up. Um, and at some point he said that, you know, if we were going to mess things up or do things incorrectly or not, you know, you know, do things the way he wanted them, that he was going to make, you know, Zach Farella, who ended up being the Saturday night guy, and James uh, Smigelski, the Friday guy, he was going to make them run while we all watched, is what he said. And then he said, you know what, you know, and, and one more person. And then he said me. And then proceeded to uh, go on a little rant about how we want to play postseason baseball and different things like that. And, um apparently dubbed me on that very day, put a little bit of a target on my back. So ultimately after that, I really wanted to just not let him down and, or, you know, make every senior and upperclassman look in that locker room. Like I didn't belong there. Right. Um, so I did, I kind of felt like I had to do things, uh, had to do things above and beyond, you know, and make sure, you know, he gave me that target initially. And I don't know if that was his ultimate master plan because, you know, that's the kind of thing coach Smith would do. Um, and I bet you if he was listening right now, he'd probably be like, huh, 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 you know, yeah. and his little laugh, right? Like, I told you. Um, but, um, yeah, that is, a, that is a little bit how that, that went, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, that is kind of how that went down. Um, but ultimately, part of it was, you know, there was a lot of guys in that locker room who were really good leaders themselves. Like Dave Andrees was a phenomenal dude to be around. Um and really welcomed me in right away, right? Redshirt senior, older brother was drafted out of the program. Like, he was already one of our best players. Like, he made me feel so comfortable right away as, like, a teammate, as a friend. Um, really brought me in. You know, those guys, Miguelski, Ferrella, for sure. And then I had a real good built-in relationship with Nick Vilter at the time. We grew up together, played together. Um, he was a junior on the team. He lived with other juniors and Joe Chavez and Alex Rabanowitz, some of my best friends. And um, I got an opportunity to, to move right in with upperclassmen who are already core members of the team. And that also helped quite a bit. And uh, yeah, man, I, I, I don't know, man. Uh, I, uh, I think the game should be played a certain way. I think you should prepare a certain way. And I think it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to, to demand that of your, of your colleagues, of your friends, of your teammates. And um, maybe that, that goes a long way with my dad and my brother in my life for sure. But um, I really enjoyed my time there. I thought the coaches and staff did a really good job and made it a really good environment for me to grow and for me to be myself um, and for our team to flourish. And, you know, that ultimately goes back to coach Smith. You know, he did a really, really good job that year. And I really, really enjoyed my year with coach Smith. You know, I'll never forget that, uh, that year. Doug's big thing, you know, coach Smith, his big thing is about what the game demands. And, you know, a lot of guys, they make demands on themselves or other people have demands on them, but they, they don't pay attention. That's kind of the difference sometimes. What's the difference between a good player and a great player? 
and at the college level in particular. And I think the difference between a good player and a great player is that the great player understands what the game demands. And sometimes what the game demands is very different than how you, how you perceive, you know, uh, your what your role is, right? Uh, and we see it. Baseball is just one of those sports. What do they say? The, the second you don't want the ball, it'll find you. Mm-hmm. The things. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I learned so much from Doug. And I, I you know, kind of – it's almost hard for me to be objective just because he's such a good man to begin with. And then he's just a great baseball man as well. But the transition from, from Doug to Troy Percival, it, it is, I always find this interesting. And I remember, I think fairly early on, Thomas, when I got to know you, you wanted to coach. I, I think at that point you were torn. You were debating whether to coach high school, whether to coach college. And I think eventually you kind of set the goal. You, were, you wanted to be a college head coach. Um, so 2015 is step two for me is when Troy Percival takes over. You're injured for the season, a labrum injury, so you can't play. You're done for the year. And it was Troy's first year, and the team really struggled till the end. They, they, they struggled because they had a bunch of injuries that year. I think, I think Drake, uh, uh, Drake Zarate got hurt. I mean, mm-hmm. you lost a couple of guys midseason as well, the pitching staff and whatnot. But what I'll remember from that season is people don't know that in conference games, there is a limit as to how many guys you can take on the road. And he took you, even though you weren't able to play, um, Troy took you on every road trip and he sat next to your, you sat next to him on the bench. Explain why that happened and why you later appreciated that. I mean, I think it happened because uh, Troy Percival is a really, because uh, Troy Percival really cared about me as soon as uh, he took over that program. Um, and I said a lot of really nice things about Coach Smith, obviously, because I love Coach Smith. And um, I don't think I'd really be a coach right now if it wasn't for Coach Percival um, because of that season, without a doubt. You know, he uh, took over the program and he was super open and honest with me right away because um, he knew I was one of the leaders on the team and he wanted my opinion. And we talked about a lot of things. He was always calling me in the office to talk and he was just very open to me and it definitely was the motivating factor of me wanting to coach baseball because I really got a better look at what it was like to be in an office because he was always asking me to come in and talk and I was hurt and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't like, I couldn't be of service anywhere cause I couldn't move my shoulder. And then I was in the sling for so long and um, it was a tough year. And the fact that he wanted me on the bench next to him for the simplest of things, right? Like it was his first season coaching college baseball. And like, we get to the first game, right. And it's like, all right, go talk to the other coach and things like that. And we're just, and like, like he wasn't asking me like, what should we do here? And things like that. We were just talking baseball the whole time. And um, I think he knew how much it meant to me. And he knew how hard it was for me to not be able to play, not be around the team. And, you know, we were struggling. We had some real tough times and he really let me hear all of it from the other side, as well as the player side. And, um, sometimes that's difficult. I think sometimes that is a difficult dynamic and, you know, not to say that me and coach Percival didn't even argue numerous times. Right. I went from like player coach to player to back to on the coaching staff kind of, and, um, me and him got to argue about baseball a ton and I love him for it because like that kind of open and free dialogue is how you grow, I think in this game. And, um, I'm really grateful for coach Percival. Like he's been super integral, like a super big part of all of this because, you know, he did. He let me go to every game that year on the road um, just so we could talk baseball and be a part of it. And it did. It really sparked that that fire in me to coach like it was already there, but it really kind of got solidified at this level that like it was what I wanted to do. 
Um, and he let me be a big part of that. And so I, I am really grateful for him. And it's a, it's a huge stepping stone for me. And he has always been someone in my corner. Him and Coach Sanfilippo actually have a relationship. And I know Coach, uh, Coach definitely gave a nice phone call in my favor. And, um, you know, Skip will always be – he'll always be someone I rely on, you know, because he was there for me. And I got to spend a lot of time with him. You know, I, I got one and done with a lot of head coaches in my time. Um, a lot of good head coaches I got to go one and done with, but I got to be with Skip for a little while. And so um, I learned a lot when around him. And um, I, I am really grateful for that year. Like just you talking about it like that, like it was a really special time for me because it's tough to be injured. A lot of people go through it and not being around your team as a leader or not leader. It's, it's just not very fun. And so he made that a really enjoyable experience for me that year. And ultimately it really helped me a lot. Hey, it's no coincidence that, you know, the, the, the two best years that UCR has had uh, in the last seven or eight years have both been the years you played. So Doug's last year in 2014, I think you guys won 26 games. And then Troy's second year in 2016, which is your ultimately your senior year, uh, you guys won 26 games. I want to talk about one more person um, that you mentioned already. You mentioned the manager job at Rochester, but you were able to get that job working for Trevor Hairgrove, who was like yourself. He was a volunteer assistant at Riverside, and then ultimately he went to New Mexico State with Brian Green. They're now at Wazoo in the Pac-12. But Trevor was the manager of the Honkers in, in the Northwoods League, which really grew. Over the last 10 years, the Northwood League has really blown up. And then you were able to take over, and you mentioned already what a, what a role that played in you getting the job at San Jose State. Give me a little bit with regard to your relationship with Trevor. Yeah, I mean, Trev, uh, Trev and me got really close at UCR. So he came in as the undergrad that 2014 year. Um, he used to sit at the end of the dugout right next to the on-deck circle. Um, he was like the last guy you got to talk to before you got on deck. And for me, that's an important person. Um, it's a really important person. And so we had a lot of really good conversations pre at bat. And I had a really solid year that year. And me and him really talked about the offensive side of it a lot. And I think that I think that summer he didn't do the honkers. I think the, the year I got hurt that very following summer was his first year with the honkers. And so as he continued his coaching career, I opened up to him a lot about wanting to be a coach. Right. He was on the staff that year. I got to travel with the team. So we talked coaching quite a bit. And then. The year I was the assistant ops, I was his assistant. Um, so we talked coaching quite a bit. And then that was the year he actually offered me his, you know, hitting coach job for the Rochester Honkers. And we had talked about it and he really, really wanted me to do it. And I wasn't really sure, like, how it all works out, the logistics and that part, right? And it was the best decision I ever made, you know? Like, it really enhanced my coaching career. I got to go out there and immediately work with a guy who ended up winning the MVP of the league to get 22 homers and hit 360. And, like, I front-tossed with him every single day after his redshirt freshman year at Texas. And now he's probably, like, a top-10 rounder at Texas this year as they're starting first baseman. And so I got the opportunity that those three summers and that very first summer, you know, ultimately because of Trevor, you know, like he really, really wanted me to do it. It was like his master plan the entire time. He had built a relationship with the uh, ownership and the GM at the time. Um, this really nice husband and wife who like treated me and Trevor like family. Um, and as soon as I got there, like he immediately told them, like, this is going to be your net head, next head coach. And I was all of 23 years old at the time. And like just green as could be um, in the middle of Minnesota with, you know, you know, fresh from Long Beach, you know how I am, always dressed, dressed out. And so um, I just had a great time. You know, I, I got the opportunity to coach their base and work with really good players. And we, we had a fun summer. And at the very end of the summer, they offered me the job. And it was like a no-brainer to take. And I ultimately, like, immediately got to go right away to talking to other Division One coaches to get their players to come play for me. 
And so I'm starting to construct my own roster. And then the very next summer I get to throw my own roster on the field. Um, and then I follow it up with a second summer. And um, I just like the entire time I got to do that, I had Trevor to rely on, you know what I mean? It was never like I was on my own because, you know, he left me the team, but then left me some framework to do it. It was all of like the stuff that he had just gone through in the first three years. And so ultimately I had a lot of his success there and we, we had some good players and some really good, you know, performances and things like that because of, you know, Trev and, you know, he's been really helpful to me along the way. We've talked a ton. We always talk baseball. I mean, I rely on him for information constantly. Um, and it's special, right? Like we're we're hoping to hopefully schedule games here in the future, right? And it's gonna be yeah. a real good reunion, right? And so, yeah. Um, he was such a good like person to rely on when I was playing. Um, I had to go from the outfield to infield that fifth year. Remember, I was playing a lot of first base that year. Trevor was out there with me early, always trying to help me with first base. You know, he was a super utility in the minor leagues. I mean, the guy is just another one of those, as as Coach Smith would say, one of the truly good human beings. Right. Um, that we have, right? One of those truly good human beings. Um, and that's probably because a lot of a lot of guys that left that program, you know, because of him are truly good human beings, right? And so, um, nah, Trev has been great, man, and uh, continues to be really, really good and good to me and um, good to my family. He's close to my older brother even, you know, my brother's scouting, and so he talks to Trev too. And so um, it's, it's turned into a whole big family affair. That's how we're, you know, whenever I watch Moneyball, I always laugh. Because Ron Washington, the way he's portrayed in my, I've never met the man in real life, but the way he's portrayed in Moneyball reminds me so much of Trevor. Just the dry, the dry one-liners about you know guys not working or how they need to work and whatnot. Um, just such a wealth of knowledge. In fact, I actually when he left, I was upset and I said, "T. Hare, you can't leave me." I, I you know, because I would talk to you and I would talk to him. That's where I get all the information. And he kind of mm-hmm. laughed about it. He goes, well, you got, you got J-Mo. J-Mo will help you out, you know. <laughs> I said, you guys are all abandoning me because I said, Thomas is gone. Now you're gone. And it was funny. It was pretty funny. Um, I want to touch on something because you talk about, you know, you've, we've talked about some of the people that have molded you. You were a JC guy twice. You were a JC guy when you left Oregon. You played in JC for a year. And then you went back and coached it. And it's a different animal particularly in baseball, because you have guys getting drafted out of the JC, which doesn't happen really in other sports. What was that experience like for you? How did that mold you, Thomas, The first as a player, then later as a coach? Yeah, you know, thankfully, I, I landed at a really good junior college, and I had a really good, you know, head coach and Coach Villarreal, and um, he surrounded me with some good people on that coaching staff. And I had mentioned Andrew Ramos, who is now the head coach there, who was there when I, I played there as a player as well, and helped bring me there. And, you know, I was I was in a different different headspace then, right? Like I had been committed to the University of Oregon for a little bit and basically was told I wasn't good enough and I didn't handle that too well and I didn't play terribly by any means, but I definitely wasn't uh I wasn't quite myself. And I had a lot of people around me that were just doing a good job of keeping me from like probably going too far the other way, if you know what I mean. Um because it was it was challenging for me to deal with for sure. And I, I haven't talked about it much and I don't open up about it much, but it was. Um, and I think Coach Villarreal, Coach Ramos, a lot of the guys that were on the team at that time were just super supportive. And it wasn't ever like this big deal or anything like that because I felt like it was, you know, I really did. And nobody else made it feel like that. And it made it really easy for me to transition. And when I got to Riverside, I started to realize that, like, I left a lot on the table there, um, which made my time coaching there even a little bit more special, I guess you would say, because 
I always felt like as a player, I left something on the table at Golden West. Um, and so as a coach there, then I got to recruit and start my like recruiting, you know, brain and mindset, how I go about it at the junior college level, because there's no scholarships and you're literally just convincing someone to come play for you. Um, and then ultimately, like I got my hands on players for the first time and really got to change swings and develop kids and work with kids. And, you know, my very first year there in the outfield, we had this five foot four kid who ran a six two sixty and could fly. Um, and we grinded in the outfield and he literally got drafted in like the 30th round because he could really run and play defense. And it was one of the most rewarding things in the world. Um, and we sent a couple of really good players off to division one schools and I was really pumped about it. And, um, like you said, it's a different kind of grind. It's a different kind of grind. And I, I got the chance to work for the guy I got to play for in coach Villarreal. Um, and I got the chance to work hard for him and, and learn more from him. And like, I don't know, we, we, me and him got to explore a few conversations that meant a lot to me. And he was always such, he's a really good man. You know, at, at the junior college level, sometimes the head coach has to be a really good man. Cause some of those kids just need one in their lives, you know? Um, and that like, sometimes they just need to go to practice and be able to talk to someone who's going to help mold them into a better man. Um, and I think Bert has done that coach Villarreal has done that for a lot of young men through that program. Um, and so he really did a lot for me in that regard. And I, like I said, I, I was really excited to go back to the junior college level and coach. Like we had a really good two years that I was there. Like we, we made a real good run that second year to make a playoff, to win, a, to get a, into the playoffs. We had to win like eight of our last nine. Um, and it was really, really fun and exciting. And so it was a rewarding experience for sure. And um, part of me was a little heartbroken when I left, not going to lie. Like I was like really enjoying my time there, but obviously like there was an ultimate goal. Um, and I wouldn't be there also with that, that stepping stone, right? I got to learn a little bit about myself in the recruiting realm and really get out at high school games and start to see stuff and learn about stuff. And, um, I just, you know, a lot of people, a lot of head coaches have been really, really good to me. And, you know, coach Villarreal is definitely on that list too. You know, you mentioned Oregon, um, and it's interesting cause you started, you played there, uh, you were a pretty you know, big recruit there. You know, George Horton is one of my favorite guys to talk to just because he's such a character um you know he's the kind of guy you can ask a question to and then you just keep quiet because he'll give you a 90 second to two minute answer to a simple question he's great one of the great interviews in college baseball um so you mentioned you know ups and downs there you got there and you played and then you know obviously i guess they made from what you just told me they made the decision for you to leave what was your relationship like with coach coach horton when you left have you guys had a chance to, I know you, cause I think you played there and, and with Riverside a couple times, played against him with Riverside a couple times. Have you gotten a chance to kind of chat with coach? Cause it was like, it's interesting. Cause since Troy got there, Oregon, the Highlanders have picked up a couple of Oregon, you know, uh, uh, cast off, cast off is the wrong word, but cause Connor was going to go there. It didn't work out. He ended up coming to Riverside and it worked out well for him. And then uh, young Nick Pena was an Oregon commit, didn't work out. And he ended up at Riverside Started off really well last year. I look forward to, to seeing what he does this year. Um, can you give? Can you? Can you? Uh, bottom line, that whole Oregon experience, and maybe touch on Coach Horton. Yeah, I mean, I think the best part about it is, is that I just think it. I really don't regret it one bit. You know, I uh, I learned a lot about myself. I got to go away from home at seventeen and learn how to like pay my rent on time and things like that because I lived in an apartment. So like. There was so much that went into the experience that was phenomenal. And part of that is the coaching staff, the entire coaching staff that was there. Um, and that starts with Coach Horton for sure. Like, I got to be on a team that was the number five national season, national seed when the season was said and done. Um, 
And the things you learn from being in that locker room, the things you learn from being in that dugout on a team like that, um, you just you just can't like you can't print it on paper, right? Like you just can't print it on paper. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so there's a ton of things that in just in that dugout I learned that year. And although it didn't work out and 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 it was kind of like you know yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the right fit for you. Um, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, you know. Um, Coach Horton really reached out to me quite a bit, actually. We spoke numerous times, and um, I think he played a really big role in a Coach LeBlanc wanting to to take me in and, and play at UC Riverside, right? Um, and also, he's kind of continued that positive, like you say, right? Like, we played against them, I think, when I was the assistant ops coach. Um, and I think he sat and talked to me for like a half hour before the game. Um like didn't even watch his own team hit. I want to say, so we could sit and talk about it. Cause I was telling him like all about my goals and what I wanted to do. And he was giving me real advice that like, you probably can't pay for even. Right. Um, <laughs> and so like, I really soaked as much as I could in and he's always been good to me. He's run into my older brother a time or two as well. Um, and so he's, he's, he's been phenomenal. And I, and I did learn so much from him and then like, that doesn't stop with him. Like coach Ullman was really phenomenal. He's at Tulane. Um, he's always reached out to me too. And we've talked at numerous times and, um, when I was coaching the honkers, I was getting players from the university of Oregon. So like I would stay in contact with him to do so. And, uh, quite a few really good ball players. Um, and so throughout my whole journey in the coaching career, I tried my best to be open and honest with a lot of those coaches and, and they were extremely helpful. You know what I mean? Um, because I think they, you know, ultimately, you know, after we went up there when I was at UC Riverside, right, like there was the weekend series there and, um, we sat and talked after that for a little bit and they were, there was like a lot of, it was always positive. It was never a negative thing. You know what I mean? And I, I'm really thankful for my experience because I learned so much. And I played with some really amazing kids, too, that guys in the game still, professionals, scouts, um, people who have, since my time leaving there, have always treated me as a member of that team that was a number five national seed. You know what I mean? And, and played in a super regional. And that's the one thing that I think is kind of special for me is that, you know, the people in that organization, people in that program, um, those guys I, I shared a clubhouse and a locker room with have always treated me like I was on that team because, you know, you were. And I guess when you get when you're not there anymore, you kind of get worried that nobody ever will remember you like that. You know what I mean? As, as a part of it, because, you know, with the way I look at it as a coach is, you know, that 35 man roster or that 27 that's in playoffs or that 40 that's there in the fall, like it takes all of them. You know what I mean? It always does. And so it was a really special year for me because I ultimately, as a coach, am really trying to create what that locker room had. And that was something that was like that chemistry piece you're talking about, right? I think we played a little bit better than what that team was on paper. Um, and so that is something I truly learned from that experience. And I hold with me everywhere I go. And um, I'm extremely thankful that I made that decision, you know, and I'm extremely thankful that it happened the exact same way it did, because, you know, I am where I am because of it. And um, I'm pretty happy with, with, with what I've become or what I am. So I, I'm thankful for how it all has gone down and the people that were a part of it. That's something that a lot of people, you know, it's something you have to figure out as you're getting older, as you're coming up, as you mature, because it didn't end well for you. But the, the action you took, how you dealt with it, I think defined what happened to you more than, you know, the fact that you were at Oregon for a year and then you weren't there anymore, you could have let that get you down. You could have let it beat you. And then you kind of took that next step. And obviously, listen, it would have been great to go four years at Oregon and play in Omaha and do all that stuff, but that wasn't going to happen. I think you took that situation and parlayed it, you know, 
as a card player, you're not always going to get dealt pocket aces. You know, you're going to get a seven nine offsuit every once in a while. You need to learn to play that as well as you need to learn to play the pocket aces. And it's obviously it's working out um, uh, for 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 yourself. And I'm happy to see that. Uh, I'm going to turn the page back. So before Oregon, you were at a magical, mystical place called Long Beach Polytechnic, Polytechnic High School. Polytechnic High School in the city of Long Beach, which is extremely famous. Everybody knows Long Beach Poly um, for a variety of reasons. So, you know, we know you're a baseball standout there. There's a story floating around about how you once hit a home run that broke a car window. I talk about that a little bit. But here's what I want. And we've, talk, we've kind of touched on this. How the heck did Laura not get you on the football field, Thomas? <laughs> um, my father would never, ever, ever let that happen. Um, oh, your father's uh, a baseball guy? My dad's, uh, my dad's, uh, I mean, he's definitely a baseball guy. He's a sports guy. He's, um, I mean, if you, he just was not for the, the, the head trauma and the contact sports. It just wasn't for him. And there's no, my father's from Barbuda. So where he's from, they play cricket and soccer actually. Um, so there isn't football. So I think, I think he just didn't think his sons were going to do that. And he chose to build or to move into the house by the little league. And he said that was good enough for him. And so, it was like baseball was destiny, even though there's zero background on either side of the family tree. But football, you know, it, it wasn't for me as much as it would have been fun to be a part of the poly lore and, and some history there because there were some good teams while I was there. I believe my first two years on campus, there was there were CIF champs and um, there were some pretty special guys. I, I remember Juju was on campus when I was on campus and right. Jalen Brown was on campus when I was on campus. Jarrell Casey was on campus when I was on campus. So, yeah. Um, it was fun. It was fun to be at Poly and enjoy it and just be a part of that that awesome culture that is Long Beach Poly High School, man. It, it is a special, special place. Um, and it's just it's just a really awesome high school to be from, really awesome community to be from, to be honest. You know, it's funny. I come from cricket people, too. So it's just really it's, <laughs> it's really the translation from cricket to baseball is really, really natural. Um, you know, and I, as I got older, I've kind of developed more of an appreciation of cricket. So I'd love to talk to your pop about cricket and back in the day, you know, when, when, when they, when it was really clicking. Um, uh, but, but Long Beach probably, I mean, it's famous for its football team, Thomas, but the baseball team is no slouch. I mean, they're always, you know, they've been turning out big leaguers for a long time. Um, let's talk about access though. Uh, there's a lot made about, you know, how there's no, you know, the, the, the paucity of African Americans in baseball. I'm guessing the city of Long Beach has a pretty good youth feeder program before you get to high school. Yeah, there's a there's a quite a few different youth feeder programs, right? I would say um, there's a couple of really good little leagues. Like, you know, I was part of the, the Stearns Park where they do the 92, 93 champs. You know, Sean Burroughs and all them. I was part of that little league. There's a quite a big community around that little league and to the Whaley Pony League that I was a part of where there's uh -huh. a couple different championship teams. Um, I would say that there's like the East Long Beach area that, you know, there, there's some good youth baseball for sure. Um, in terms of the, you know, I mean, I, I don't know exactly where that, the questions necessarily headed, but um, I think the baseball in Long Beach at the youth level is top notch. And that's partially because a lot of the same kids who partook in it give back. Um, and there that's you. the part of Long Beach that I love. Right. Um, one of my best friends runs a travel ball program that's probably got over 150 to 200 kids, you know, two kids that I grew up playing with. Um, got another buddy that has his own facility where he trains the youth baseball players of Long Beach. I mean, it goes on and on the different kids that I got to play with that are still working at the youth levels in the game. 
Um, and it's just about the whole giving back and that, that whole aspect of it. Right. And so ultimately, um, it is a beautiful thing. And now that I look back, right, I'm just thinking of all the people who basically did the exact same thing for me. Um, now that I think about it, so it is, it is an ever going process. You know what I mean? Um, it's just, I, I, like I said, it's a great community. It's a really special community. And there, there is a really good baseball community in that area. Right. And part of that's, you know, getting to watch really good college baseball and seeing quite a few pros coming out of the area for so long. And, um, it is special. It definitely is. You got a chance to play at the MLB Academy, correct? Yes, quite a bit. What was that like? It was, uh, it was definitely a huge piece for me. Um, my older brother kind of got started there a little bit before me. Um, they did a lot of different tournaments and events that got a lot of us in front of scouts and coaches and college coaches and, um, at the time, I didn't exactly know what travel ball team to play for, what area to go to. Um, it's funny, right? Like you talk about Oregon and in the recruiting process, like they post your bio, right? When they do the signing list and all the kids that I was going in there with, it was like their perfect game rank and what they did at this thing and that thing and that thing. And like mine's like he played at Poly, He was good there. And he went to the Urban Youth Academy. And like that was it. Right. And um yeah that was what the urban youth academy was for a lot of us like i got to go do um i played on an rbi junior championship team where we played where uh my where the dolphins still play where the marlins used to play uh, we played on their field and i was on a team with jp crawford who was a gold glove finalist for the seattle mariners um dominic smith who was a hank aaron award finalist for the new york mets this year um I think Jeremy Martinez was on that team from like USC. There's like there's a handful of guys and we're all just from the area and on this team because of some really good coaches in the area. There's a guy named Carl Nichols who played at Compton high school, played for the Orioles and played for the Astros. And Carl was really important in my development in high school baseball because he kind of wanted me to go play in all these big events and things that i never even knew about. He took me to go try out for team USA and I'm over here at shortstop taking ground balls next to Lindor looking like I'm a fool because Francisco Lindor is amazing. Um, and we're, and like, it's just a whole lot of opportunities that I just never would have really gotten. Um, if I hadn't been introduced to the urban youth Academy, if I hadn't got that much, that high level of coaching for free, you know what I mean? Then that's as simple as it gets. Like I could show up and for no money and no fee and I could get coached by former big leaguers and learn how to play the game. And, and for me and my brother and a lot of our friends, I was extremely special and um, extremely important into our process of getting better at baseball, you know? Um, and I am super thankful for the Urban Youth Academy, man. It, it did a lot for a lot of us and kept us all on a ball field a lot. I mean, the answer you seem to give me is, Hey, you're Mike, the community you grew up in invested in baseball. And as a result, you know, you mentioned guys giving back. You had an opportunity to go play in these in these in these venues that you might not have otherwise been able to experience. And I, you know, I, I mean, watching the World Series, I don't know how much you watch the World Series, but they were just talking about how it's it, it seems like an anathema to me. You know, especially as the child of immigrants, it was like that little league is now going to be not accessible to a lot of people. And you know, whatever thirty years ago, you know, for us, it was like it was kind of the thing, right? It was the neighborhood deal and everybody kind of did it. And it was real easy. The access was pretty easy. You had to walk down to a, whatever school you were at and you turned in paperwork and it wasn't all that expensive. And now it just seems to me like it just, the idea that little league is going to be out of the realm of somebody's financial means, just really a guy, a guy like me who loves baseball, Thomas, that it really hurts. You know, I, I think every kid who wants to play baseball should get an opportunity to play baseball. Absolutely. And, um, that is extremely upsetting to hear. And, um, 
it is it is tough. It is extremely tough to kind of even think about it in that sense because you're right. It, it shouldn't it shouldn't become something that you know just anybody can't do, and and that is that is terrible to think about. And I mean, it goes it goes real deep, right? I mean, it goes to the point of like um, highlighting some more players in the major leagues that are doing well, right? And you know, I, I, the Mariners actually did a really good job this year because they actually have the most African American or Black players on their team. Mm-hmm. right now um or on their 40 man and they they did a really few really good things about you know just talking about like highlighting those professional players so that maybe more kids of color do want to do it you know what i mean they they see someone that looks like them they see the mookie bets right there's right. only one mookie bets in the world series so like it, it's that one guy that you get to see that inspires you and so, like for me growing up you know there was a lot of griffey there was a lot of bonds inspiring me yeah. right like there was there was quite a few players to look at i'm a huge barry larkin fan like yeah. um there's just not as many options for them to look at and i i'm not sure what the exact answer is but definitely little league not being accessible isn't it that's for sure um and so it is it is frustrating at times and part of that is a division one coach, right. Is hoping that, you know, we can do things in the community as well here. Right. And that, that's definitely something that post pandemic, I'm really hoping we get to, you know, kind of dive into is what kind of community related events we can do on a baseball field um, in terms of free youth camps and things of that nature. And um, I remember being part of a few of them myself. So I, I definitely think it's about time we, uh, we go back and serve our community. Right. Well, especially with the legacy, you know, San Jose State has going back, if you go back historically to, to see uh, the, the people that were on that campus at, 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 you know, at certain times in history. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a couple times uh, Glenn Walker, your brother, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing some things in baseball right now, and I'm sure he was a big influence for you. Take me through your big brother's kind of his journey and how it affected yours. Oh, man. Um Scout with the Mets now, correct? Correct. Yeah, he is the um, SoCal area scout with the New York Mets. He, uh, me and him were on the phone earlier. His, um, he got a guy I think with like the 87th overall pick this year, and he just crushed it in instructs this year, and so he's pretty pumped about it. Um, local product, Corona High School, Isaiah Green. Um, okay. Pretty good, pretty good ball player, I guess. So my brother, my brother loves him, and it sounds like he's doing well. And, my brother has been, I mean, it, it's crazy the kind of influence an older brother has on you, right? Like, um, you go through so many different phases of of arguing and fighting, but the, the love remains. And he's just like, he's the ultimate example and always has been in my life. He, we're, we're, we're really opposites in, in a lot of ways, especially when we were on the field. He was, you know, a skinnier, quick shortstop to my, you know, rather bigger, slow outfielder, right? Um and we just took different paths in the career. And he, because my parents didn't have the greatest baseball background prior, like, you know, the older sibling definitely had a little more of the trial and error. Right. Yeah. Um, he definitely took some lumps so that, you know, younger brother had an easier path. And I didn't notice that probably age seven to 18, but I noticed it a lot more now as an adult. And um, I'm extremely thankful for it. And, you know, he definitely set, he definitely made my process so much easier going first, you know? Um, and so like he did go to a junior college out of high school. He ended up at Compton college where the urban youth Academy is um, at that, at that college campus. And they use that field, um, which is also why we, we spent some time there. Um, and when, once he got to junior college, he started to flourish more and he was, he was undersized. He needed to get in the weight room and eat. And um, the commitment level I got to watch out of him to be great. Um, 
truly drove a work ethic in me once I got to college. I, there is no way on God's green earth I can look at myself in the mirror and say I worked how my brother worked in my high, my, my parents' home in high school. Like he worked like that in high school and he worked like that in college. And it was when I got to college that I realized like, no, I needed to do what I saw my older brother doing the whole time. Um, and that was special for me. And then a lot of things changed when I was 18 years old because he was in Jackson, Mississippi at Jackson state where he played uh, division one baseball at. And I was in Eugene, Oregon, and we were really far apart and things were difficult and things were hard on me as a freshman. And I picked up the phone to call my older brother and it was like a real like moment changing thing for us for quite a few years. And he's been super supportive, super important through this whole process. Like, I mean, we're in a pandemic right now where I can't go out recruiting and he's a professional scout. He has no rules. Like, um, I can't imagine another person I would rather have their opinion on a, on a high school player than, you know, my brother. Um, if there's anyone that wants to see me succeed, it's him. Um, so he's, uh, he's a special, special, special man. And, um, his work ethic is just bar none and to watch it firsthand and to then try to emulate it. Um, has probably been the most special part of his influence in my life. And then obviously the fact that he's gone out of his way to do anything and everything. I mean, he once scouted in the Northwoods league and followed my team around for a while. And, um, the baseball thing has just been an amazing thing for us. I mean, we've been at different games together now as coach and scout. So, um, it's just really, it's really fun to get to be a part of something with your brother and in the field that you love, the game that we grew up loving together, in the front yard playing catch and wiffle ball and all the fights and the screams to the arguments over the phone over players and things. So, um, no, it's just really special to have someone on this journey with and someone you can rely on and trust and, and look up to. And ultimately he's, he's really good at what he does. And what he does is the, the, the most professional thing of what I'm doing, I guess. So, um, it's really ultimately like the best big brother in the world. Let's be honest. So um, he, he is super special and I'm proud of him. I'm proud of everything he's done. And I definitely wouldn't be where I am without him either. So um, no, he is a huge influence. It's a great relationship too, with you being a coach and him being a scout and you can compare notes. That sounds great. It sounds awesome. Yeah. You know? It is. There's some serious mutual benefit. Mainly on my side, I'm not sure how I help him out too much yet, but I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> he's got the exp he's got the big league expense account, Thomas. Remember that. So yeah, no, he does. He does. That's right. <laughs> but no, I mean, and the Mets. He's got a new boss now. Steve Cohen just bought the Mets, so he's probably going to have a little bit uh, longer chain now in terms of the fi finances. That's what we're hoping for. That's what he said. We're hoping a little. A few. <laughs> he's hoping that's for sure. <laughs> Um, uh, you know what? So, I, you know, we've kind of been down the person, the personal thing, but let's, let's get to baseball a little bit. Uh, you have played college baseball and now you've coached in college baseball and you just watched the world series and there was the big debate. I don't know if it's a big debate. It's been an ongoing debate with analytic <laughs> baseball. How much, um, it's interesting. I love, I mean, Troy Percival, he, he's a guy you could just listen to talk baseball forever. And I, I always loved listening to how, he approaches analytics and keep in mind, you know, he played for Mike Socha, but Joel Madden was also on that bench. And then later he was at Tampa Bay with Andrew Friedman who put together this Dodgers team. But let's, let's cast this question in context of what you do, Thomas, how much is analytics used in college baseball? Um, it's difficult, right? Like, I think analytics plays a role at the big league level and there's success with it because there's so many games and so much information. Um, I would say at our level, a lot of times, if you really dive into the analytics, you, you just need a bigger sample size. 
it's very rare that you can have a big enough sample size on a college player to get analytics to make some kind of, you know, real impact in my mind. There's definitely statistics that you want to look at and different things of that nature, no doubt. Um, I would say it's definitely interesting because I've learned more about it, especially through my brother as a scout. He had to go through a lot of different things. Um, but ultimately, like, the biggest thing for me is, like, the, the sample size becomes a little difficult, and I think that's the hardest part to make it translate because in the big leagues, right, like, you're, you're going off a guy with a – 800 minor league at bats or you're going off a guy in college as a junior who's still at 250. I mean, um, or if we're lucky. Um, So I think, you know, that's the biggest issue for me when looking at it, but I mean, don't get me wrong to, to say that you aren't open to learning more about how the game of baseball is being played. I mean, to say that the Dodgers don't use analytics. Like I think the Dodgers build the best team out of anybody. Like I just like the way they build a baseball team. Um, so clearly they're using some analytics, right? Like there's analytics somewhere, but um, to say that maybe I would uh, take Blake Snell out of a game. Um, I don't know if I'm taking Blake Snell out of the game. So I'll put it like that. Um, yeah. There's still a part of this that uh, I like what I see on the field and I like watching the game and you got to have a pulse and a feel for things. Um, but no, man, there's definitely analytics in this game and I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, I think it just ultimately comes down to like what you value as a coach, right? And what, what numbers make sense to you and how you value them. And I think the worst thing anyone can do is just use some numbers because they feel like they're supposed to use the numbers. Right. Um, I think ultimately as a coach, you got to win it. You got to win and lose with your, whatever you're willing to win and lose with. And I learned that one from coach LeBlanc. Um, he's like, I don't want to lose anyway. I'm not okay with losing. Um, so that is, uh, that's how I feel about it for sure. What I have learned in covering a multitude of sports is the the coaches or managers that are the best are the are the people that really know their personnel. And when you have two great coaches going against each other, invariably one is able to beat the other because they know their personnel just a little bit better. And you're absolutely right. You know, Doug Smith explained to me about the idea of sample sizes. There's two reasons in college baseball. It's not they're different analytics that work in college versus pros, correct? The, what you mentioned, the sample size is small. And the other thing is, you know, for certain for certain advantages, those players really aren't at the college level. They're already been drafted into the pro level. You know, like I, I realize, you know, and I'm not a fan of it, so it's great for me in college. The right left thing isn't so important in terms of the pitchers batters matchups. You know, and I remember having a long conversation with Doug Smith about it. So you know, those lefties that are so hard on left-handed hitters, they're all in the pros at this point anyway. And any left, and this is you know, remember Doug Smith loved his lefties, his lefty. Yeah, he did. And he said, any any lefty I have should be able to hit any lefty. You know, maybe there's one guy for you know, there's one guy on Fullerton who I might do the righty lefty thing with, but otherwise, any lefty I have in my lineup should be able to hit any other lefty that is throwing because all the guys that would give them trouble are already in the pros. And he did love his left-handed hitters, that's for sure, man. We had a ton of them. That was the one thing I felt so great about joining that team. I was like everyone's left-handed he's got to want to put me in the lineup somehow there's nobody's right-handed around here oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> um hey you know you know like i think you downplay your your playing career you were a first team all big west guy in 2014 i always like to point that out you know for all the jokes you make about your playing ability uh that was very impressive the next impressive thing that you did to, i remember the first alumni game you played in you put two of them in the gap you showed those uh young whippersnappers how to do it 
Yeah, you know, I think um, I think Ricky Delgado really wanted to ha- let me have a nice day or something like that. I think that's what happened at the alumni game. I'm not too sure about that one. But, um, no, 20, 2014 was a good year for sure. I uh, I had a lot of really good hitters in the lineup around me. You know, Nick Filter with 10 bombs and Tejas is a draft pick and Belaski and Andres. I mean, some yet to throw somebody a fastball in that lineup. And so I, I guess I got a few of them. So, no, it was it was fun. It was definitely a special year. And, um it was a good year with Coach Smith in the cages, you know. I, I, I believe in that kind of relationship as well, right? And then obviously, hey, you, you talk about Barry Bonds. You're playing a Barry Bonds-ish left field that year, Thomas. You know, For a guy who only played infield, all of a sudden you're an outfielder and uh, you're pretty good that year. You know, I was I was I was a little worried that year. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think a <laughs> few other people might have been too. Um, but thankfully – Thankfully, the balls that touch the glove stayed in the glove, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. And sometimes that's what I tell my guys. So, um, no, I just remember was, uh, the the meetings with Coach Smith over the years when he would just tell me what he really thought, you know. And uh, I'm like, you know, hey, this guy left me. He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, not this is not about you, but it was another player. And he goes, listen, uh, every time the ball goes in the air, I kind of have to close my eyes, but he can hit, you know, he can hit. That's why that's why he's in the lineup because of his bat. Um, uh, so it's, it's really interesting to have those kind of, you know, and, and Troy was great at those two, the off the record. Bobby Applegate probably was the best in terms of his one liners when he get frustrated, you know, mm-hmm. he, he talk bad about a kid, but you always kind of knew who he was frustrated with when he was making the jokes. Yes. Oh man. Good group. You, you, you were lucky with a good group. Uh, you mentioned coach LeBlanc a couple of times. I think was he he was already at Riverside by the time you were at Oregon, correct? He was. I think we missed each other by just one year. I think he was the volunteer at Oregon when I was a senior in high school. He left, and his wife was still the uh, SID for Oregon baseball. She right. actually was on like she traveled with us, and I knew who she was. She actually had a last name next to my last name. Our flights were always our seats were always next to each other. Um, so it was really funny because I know she actually helped in the recruiting process. She was like, hey, he's a nice kid. So, um, But, no, Coach LeBlanc, um, me and Coach are really, really, really close still. I call him an awful lot and probably bug him too much. But, um, yeah, he, he's been really there for me throughout this whole deal. Like, I can't think of anyone I rely on for information and questions and, like, dude, what do I do? <laughs> like, kind of questions. And he's been really, he's been really great to me over the phone. I, I can't imagine – He's been really great to me in my entire life, right? Like he recruited me there. Um, we spent a lot of time there. And when I was on the coaching staff, like I just tried to do everything I could to help him out and make things better. And um, I just really appreciate Coach Blanc a lot too. He, like you said, that coaching staff in general, with Coach Smith, Coach Applegate, Coach Blanc, and Coach Valentine, um, and Coach Hairgrove was awesome. It was a really awesome year in terms of like guys to be around. We got the Naval Academy, Portland, UC San Diego, all yep. right there with those three and now Washington state with Trevor. I mean, um, pretty, pretty cool year. I would say actually, now that you put it in perspective for me. I mean, no, it, it's great for me. You know, it makes me seem like I know what I'm doing. Cause I, I, I can refer to yourself and to Trevor and to Bryson and, you know, coach Applegate, coach Valentine, now Jared Morton, uh, you know, now he's at the junior college level, but still mm-hmm. I, I I'll bug him about, I actually bugged him about some pitching stuff over the summer. You know, I just said, hey, man, you got to break this down for me. And he was really helpful. So it's always good to have resources on the field, you know. And, and, and uh, yeah, when I was starting in the business, uh, one of the guys told me, 
they had come up as an intern right when the Big East was getting really big in the early 80s. And so he had, you know, Patino and Calipari and all these guys were calling him back. And he goes, you know, we were all 24 years old together. So, you know, we all kind of ran around the same circles and they all moved up and I moved up. And that's how you develop those sources. So it's 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 really it's fun to see kind of the Doug Smith coaching tree grow the way it has with all you guys. Um, you know, hey, thanks for the time. I got a couple of things. I know you got to go. I know it's been a while. It's, it's later. But I want to bring something up. So Chadwick Bozeman, when he passed away this summer, sadly, um, there was a story about him and a connection with Denzel Washington. When he was at Howard University, he there was, an, oh, there was a program for actors in Britain, which he wasn't going to go to. He didn't have the dough. And Denzel Washington, uh, through Felicia Rashad, paid for him to go to go to this conservatory in Britain. Um, I, I bring the story up because I was reading about a young player at Long Beach Poly who had an opportunity to with one of Long Beach Poly's prominent baseball alumni. Can you shed some light on that for me, Thomas? What, what was the question exactly? I'm sorry. I, I think you cut out for a second. Okay. So, uh, you know, you heard the Chadwick Boseman story. Yes, about yes. How play, paid for him to go to the conservatory in Britain. Um, I had read tale of a when, – when you were at Long Beach Poly as a player, there was a prominent Hall of Famer from Long Beach Poly who came to speak at the high school, and there was a young 15-year-old – you know, at that time, I don't know if he wanted to be a coach, but now he wants to be a coach who kind of picked this uh, this Hall of Famer's brain. You remember that at all? I'm not exactly. I don't know. Maybe my brain's maybe my brain's escaping me. I mean, about the time you you picked Tony Gwynn's brain. Oh no! Yes. Oh yeah. That was um my junior year, we got to go down to San Diego state for opening weekend. And Tony Gwynn was a coach down there at the time. And he gave us like a really quick Q and a, um, because he's a former Long Beach poly guy and it was really special. And I like raised my hand quickly to ask my first question. And I, I can't even remember. I think it was something really simple. Like, you know, if you had to tell a hitter one thing, like, what would you tell him to go do like in a cage? Right. And he's like, you know, put the tee out in front of you. Like Ted Williams said this, like hit the ball off the tee to a little square in the back of the net as many times as you can in a row. If you do it like 20 times in a row, like call me back and we'll get to the next thing. And I was like, oh, wow. And then like I look around and like nobody's ready to ask another question. So I was like, all right, I got something else. And I raised my hand. and I was like, I can't even remember. I had to think of something super fast. And I was like, you know, like, what do you think about I, I know eventually we got to like, what do you think about steroids in baseball? Because I asked every big leaguer possible, like, what do they think about steroids in baseball? Um, but no, I think what ended up happening was like all my teammates were afraid and gun shy and or didn't know enough about Tony Gwynn to ask enough questions. And I sat there and we kind of had a conversation in front of my team for about five to eight minutes. Um and I, I don't know. He definitely didn't recruit me after that, so I, maybe I didn't do a very good job. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, the, the reason I bought that story up is it, it dovetails into a conversation I had with Tony Gwynn, and I, I fortunately had the opportunity to talk to him two or three times because of his relationship with Doug. And until to this day, one of my highlights of my career was when I walked into the stadium at San Diego State, and this is when he's undergoing his treatment for cancer. So they weren't sure if he was even going to be there because I, mm -hmm. I called Dave Kuhn, who was the rest. I said, hey, can I get five minutes with coach before the game? And he said, well, if he's here, you can. But I don't know that he's going to he's back and forth with the doctor for treatment. And I walk in there 
and I hear the cleats clack on the concrete, and there's Tony Gwynn calling my name. But um, it's germane to our conversation. Is one of the best conversations I had with him was an interview I did with him. It was back in 2011, and we talked a little bit of baseball. But all he wanted to talk about it was late March. All he wanted to talk about is the NCAA tournament, and that was in 2011 when Connecticut won the national championship. Led by, which who I just found out in the last week before doing this, your cousin Kemba Walker was the player. You know, Tony being an old point guard, he was just raving about Kemba Walker. <laughs> no, yeah, that um, that was a really exciting year. I actually got to go to the Elite Eight game against Arizona. His Kemba's mom and aunt, and his aunt and my dad are so close. Um called my dad because they she knew he was in southern california we're like the only family here um and sure enough i was sitting next to kemba's mom and i mean like everybody from yukon in the world could have came up and said hi to us and i was just sitting there watching the basketball game and we got to meet him after and we talked for a little bit it's like the only time i've ever talked to him um but no it was super cool super special and um, it's been really fun to watch his career the entire time right like he does things really the right way and um it's really cool for our um, where my father's are from originally, honestly, Barbuda. It's really not the the biggest island, but you know, it's kind of special having some bloodlines come out of there and do some special things, right? And um, that's pretty cool that Tony Gwynn was a big fan, man. That that is special to me for sure. So your so your your dad and his mom are brother sister. Is that what it is? His his dad and my dad are cousins. He's my okay. second cousin. Okay. So, um, they grew up actually in the same house. His dad, my dad, from like three to like seven, I want to say. Um, there's a family event that my older brother and him were at when they were real little uh, back there, and I didn't make it out to. And then that Elite Eight game, and he's you know he's doing his thing in the NBA, man. So we 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 ain't mad at him. Yeah, so I mean, so he he has played at the highest levels of college basketball, and I know at one point, I, you know, and I, I always wonder about this because I talk to you enough to where you know you, you we've kind of exchanged, you know, we know kind of a little bit about each other. Did you did you ever make like tell anybody that your goal was to be the first African American head coach in Omaha? Was that something you actually said, or is that just something somebody wrote? Um, yeah, I probably, I definitely said that out loud. hundred percent. I was going to, um, I was going to blame Hendrickson, but I, I, I don't know where I got that. I said, I might've gotten that from you, but I heard that somewhere. Um, so you're on the path, right? It's, it's, I mean, the goal is in the, is ahead of you at this point, but you are a assistant coach at a D one university for baseball. And that's usually where they get their head coaches from unless they play the big leagues. Right. Um, right. looking forward, um, that's still that's still the goal, right? To coach in Omaha. Without a doubt, the goal is to win, right? Um, I think the I think the real the real goal there would be the first one to win, right? Um, I'm not even sure if that anyone has or hasn't. I, I would have to do some more fact checking there, but um, I think the goal would be to be the first one who got to win as a head coach, right? Or win period at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I always joked around with a lot of different things. I remember being like from age five to ten, I was going to be the president. So. Um, I was, I guess, on to my next first I could be, if you know what I mean. Um, You know, I I know people who know you, you know, you're you're a man of many talents. And another thing I just found out, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, because sometimes they, you know, I know a lot of guys when they do their bios, they'll make stuff up. You know, Joe Kelly would would told Maxwell, 
that he was related to Machine Gun Kelly. And it was a total joke. And I'm the kind of guy that will do that. I'll say stuff like that. Um, did you play George Bailey on stage at, in high school? I did. Yeah, I was uh, I was in the theater department. I, uh, I had a girlfriend that was in the drama program early on. And so I guess I kind of got wrangled into it. Um, but I was all right. I thought I was pretty good. I'll be honest. I'm not going to lie. I, I have, we had like a 175 page script and I wasn't on but one page. Um, and it was like the most gruesome thing trying to learn. And then it was a really cool experience because everyone was like, oh, really? Like Mr. Baseball player, huh? And the whole time our drama teacher, Miss Hubbard, she knew this whole time I was this amazing thespian that she thought, um, and truthfully, I was just hanging out, trying to have a good time. And, I, you know, there was a girl in there that I really liked. And next thing I know, she's asked me to be the lead role of the play. And my mom really, really enjoyed it. I don't think there's anything she is more proud of in my entire life. And I That's feel like I played great. some decent baseball. But, no, I don't think she's more proud of anything in my entire life. George Bailey, that's a that's a, that's Americana, Thomas. Oh no, man, it was it was a deep role, man, a deep deep role. I really had to stretch myself. Of all the baseball players I've ever covered or met, you're probably the Jimmy Stewart of baseball. <laughs> there you go, right there, man. Do you remember any of the lines? Oh, in that one, um, Chucks. So you're you're running the. I you're, know, you're I know, in the. You're running savings and loan, and now there's a run in the bank, and I want my money. Oh, I can't even begin to think of the bank scenes, but yeah, I yeah. do know in the very last show, it's like a rite of passage at Pauly in the theater department that like you change a line at the very end, in, in some point in the in the play, right? Right. And so one of my lines I remember is I was with like, I, it's like the teenage scene where I'm like dating my future wife, and I'm like, we're walking, she's got my Letterman's on, and I'm like, I'm going to build things like houses and skyscrapers and baseball fields. And I said it like bright baseball fields, cheesy smile. And my drama teacher was sitting front row and I thought she was going to lose it because she knew that I was going to say something stupid. And the whole room cracked up because a ton of my teammates were there for the very last show. Um, And so that was one that I do remember. Um, Yeah, I actually for as many lines as I had, I can't think of one, but I can think of the only line I had the year before in the play. Um, I was in a sec. I was in another one the year before that as a junior. It was a good. Good times are killing me. It was a really good one. Yeah. Ooh, what was your What was your role in that? There was basically about a black and a white family where the two daughters get along. So I was like black dad, and so it was just oh, me that- sing, singing to my wife uh, as I came home from work. That's great. No, no, George Bailey. I mean, I can, I read that. And I'm like, you know what? That kind of makes sense for Tiwa. Like, just you know, knowing you, I'm like, I can, I can see that. I, we really, we had to go through. I mean, the first scenes, me on that bridge, and the angel comes and sees me, right? And I'm yeah. like contemplating my life as I'm sitting there, and oh man, deep stuff, deep stuff. Maybe, maybe when the baseball career's over, I'll uh, take a shot in my old age at Hollywood or something. Well, listen, you have to, you have to have the team over for that movie now. I mean, it's out, it's out in the open. Just I know my mom has it too, for sure. That's the worst part. Just remember this, Thomas. Every time a two-out RBI gets hit to the opposite field, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> that's a good one. No, that's not, a, not not a Los Angeles angel of Anaheim, a real angel. It's all right, Oops. Thomas Walker. Thanks. It's been more than an hour. Before I let you go, a young player's coming up like yourself. And they figure out at a certain point that the game is going to end fairly soon. 
what are a couple of pieces of advice that you would give them uh, to move forward if they want to stay in baseball? You know, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, really evaluate what it is you want to do in baseball. I think there's a ton of different avenues. You know, I don't think everyone necessarily has to be the division one coach or the JC coach or a coach even, right? Like the operations part of the job, the scouting part of the job. I mean, there's so many different jobs in major league baseball. Um, but one thing I would say is though, if you want to be a part of the game and you want to make a career out of it, like go for it. Right. Like that's the one thing that I really have enjoyed about this whole thing. And obviously I've had really supportive family and a really great mom and dad that have kind of helped like, you know, let me live at their house for a few years while I was a JC coach. Um, and so obviously like there's some supporting factors that go with it. But, you know, the one thing that I would say is like, you know, figure out exactly what it is that you want to do in the game because there's so many different options and then go for it, you know, um, and be a sponge because there are so many baseball people in this world with a ton of knowledge that are, you know, willing to give it over. And that's what I've learned over this year and over this year, over over a lot of years and. Um, the more sponge like you can be in the room, the better. Um, and I think that goes for players, coaches, you know, humans, um, together. So, um, that's what I got for you, Thomas. It's always, I mean, I always enjoyed our conversations and this was great to learn a little bit about you and, and get into the baseball part of it. So good luck. Just do you, have you guys get, gotten any indication as to 2021 or basically it's just, you're, you're getting ready to be ready. We're getting ready to play. We've got, um, We've got some finished some scheduling stuff, but it, I mean, hey, we are we've got what we're supposed to be playing and we are ready to prepare for it. They tell you when the season's supposed to start or is that still up in the air? It is not up in the air. The exact date, though, I would say the I think it's the 12th. I think there are games that opening weekend, the 12th. It might be the 19th, um, but it's supposed to start on time like normal, like it did the oh, last few years. OK, um, I think the only difference is a lot of the different conferences are doing different things. Like our conference is going to a new conference schedule. Um, we'll be playing every team in the conference twice for like a 36 game season. Mm -hmm. So there's a less like open weekends to play other teams, you would say. Um, right. But I'm excited about that. Like what a gauntlet for the Mountain West, right? Like a, the toughest team, the realest team should rise to the top. And I think that's super exciting um, to go everywhere and then to have everywhere come to you. I mean, um, I'm kind of looking forward to it. You know, you bought something up and I can't let you go now. No, um, you're good. Mountain West, Mountain West, right? Right. Uh, it's a very hitters league. Like you guys in San Diego State are kind of the two places you can actually get pitchers to come, right? Because mm -hmm. so many of the other venues are, you know, UNLV, New Mexico, Air Force. They're all at altitude. Nevada's kind of neutral a little bit. Um, the game's a little bit different, right? It's like it's like you got a whole league of teams that play at Coors Field, no? Correct. No. And the craziest part, right? Like the last year was my first year and it got cut right before the conference play. Right. And so um, that is, I think, what is most exciting about this 36 game schedule. Like I'm going to see everywhere in conference this first year. And that's like a huge thing for me because I didn't get to go anywhere last year or see any of the teams last year. It's going to be really important for getting acclimated into the conference as a coach and really start to build up like how you game plan against programs because that's ultimately what it comes down to from what I hear from Coach Smith. I, I remember like, oh, we're playing Fullerton this week. This is how we do it, right? Um, and so that that's kind of the stuff that I'm getting to embark on now. And But you're right. There is uh, – I looked at some old box scores. There are some uh, there are some impressive ones that uh, we got to hit our way into. So I'm excited about that. It should be fun.
Yeah, you got it. You got a bug coach. Hey, why don't we go on the road against the Mountain West more often? It oh, done. I've already done that. I'm like Coach LeBlanc, who? Why did we never schedule these places? Like, where were we? I'm mad at myself. What was I thinking? Right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then, and then I got to ask you about the Reds. So, how uh, does a kid from Long Beach become a Reds fan? My mother was born um, in Lebanon, Ohio. Um, all of her family still lives right around that area. Um, I grew up going back to Ohio for two weeks every summer to hang out, um, oh, good. farm, go to Reds games, go to Bengals preseason games. Um, die hard. Ken Griffey Jr. is the GOAT, the greatest who ever did it. Um, when he got traded to the Reds, it was like the greatest day of my life. Um, and so I'm a Reds, Bengals, Lakers fan, man. Okay. Through and through. Probably one of the only ones in the world. So, um I love my two Reds or my two Cincinnati sports teams, even though we can't figure it out. Um, and I did like my uncles really did like pump me full of some old Reds, like history and memorabilia and all kinds of stuff. Like I like I talked about Barry Larkin, like I really got to watch him play. And like, I mean, I did in person even, but like his greatest years were like I was two. Um, so, um, and like, I talk about Eric Davis, like I really watched Eric Davis play when I just watched highlights on these old tapes over and over and over again. So, um, no, I am a, a very, very big Reds fan. There's a brick outside of great American ballpark that has my brother and my name on it that we got for a Christmas present in 2005. Um, and then, yeah, I'm i I'm officially a Joey Burrow believer because I wasn't initially and he's winning me over left and right. And so I'm, I'm, I think I'm gonna go buy me a white Joey Burrow Jersey. Um, because I need that, and he played it well in it last weekend, so I'm feeling it. Yeah, well, I can relate. I have family. I have family in Ohio. My my sister and brother in law live there, and so my two little nieces are just starting to develop their little Ohio twang. So it's a little strange for me to hear those <laughs> voices coming out, but it's it's great. I it, they live in Columbus, so I get to go to Columbus pretty much every year, and it's it's a it's a fun time. They're big Ohio State people over there, so. Oh yeah, there's nothing like some Ohio State fans. That's the Ohio State. The uh, Ohio State. Do they re-sign Bauer or not? Real quick. They should. They won't. Um, but they should. They won't. He's going to the highest bidder for a year or two. We know that. He's going to have a good, fun time. It's going to be great. All right, Thomas. Thomas Walker, thanks again. Great conversation. Good luck. We'll catch up with you during the season. Thank you again. Thank you for having me, Saul, man. It was great talking to you. Have a good one, man.